Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're concluding our series today, To the King. So let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 to 12, as Dr. Newfeld brings us the message, The King's Royal Decree. There's an old adage that I'm sure you've heard before. It says, history never moves along in a straight line. And that saying means you really don't know what's going to happen by observing present-day trends. All that present-day trends tell us is how things are changing and progressing presently. Suddenly something changes and all the old prognostications just simply don't matter. Trends are frequently interrupted. As an example of what I'm talking about, I want you to think about how the world changed in the 20th century. That century began with many assuming that the great liberal belief in a steadily improving and advancing world was upon the human race. We had emerged out of the shadows of our dark, ignorant past, and we were marching into the sunlight of the Enlightenment. We were masters of our future. And then came the events no one saw coming. June 28, 1914, Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria was assassinated, and in consequence, from 1914 to 1918 came what we now call the First World War. It was so awful that it was then believed to have been the war to end all wars, and sorry, that didn't become a trend. In spite of that hope that all things were going well, that we now think of as the Roaring Twenties, it was just a lull before an overwhelming hurricane. In 1917, a man named Vladimir Lenin led a revolution in Russia. Communism would change the world. Then in the 1930s came the Great Depression, followed by the rise of the Nazis in Germany and the Second World War. Millions upon millions would die to say nothing of the horrifying suffering of the Jewish people. And finally, the Nazis would fall, but war with Japan still raged on in a world that was horrifyingly weary of war. And then it came to a sudden end as two atomic bombs Weapons no one knew were possible were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And suddenly there dawned upon the world weapons that could easily end all life in minutes. But with the aftermath of the war, changes were about to sweep the world, which were profound. Communism gained ground in China in 1947. The modern state of India, free from British rule, occurred that same year. Pakistan was formed as a nation on the same day as India. The British Empire was crumbling. The Jewish state of Israel was formed one year later, and the Jewish regained a homeland after 2,000 years. No one realized how profoundly the world would change after the Second World War. Well, I could go on and on, but you can see I have made my point. These were all seismic changes that no one, absolutely no one predicted. And when I think such thoughts, I'm reminded of the words of Proverbs 16, verse 9. The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. Yeah, we might plan where we want to go, but the actual steps along the paths are surprising. They were designed by God. Yesterday, I began a study of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 really is a praise of the great king who cancels the plans of men and who directs the course of the entire human race. We began the study by noticing that it was a psalm in celebration of the kingdom of Israel established under the leadership of King David. David, we said, had fought a number of defensive wars, wars that led him to subjugate hostile nations around him in order to secure peace for the nation of Israel. And so Psalm 2 begins with these words, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Well, David rightly sees that the wars that were directed against Israel are in fact directed against God. God has, through his servant Abraham, promised that he would, through Israel, bless the human race. At the heart of the blessing is the forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with the one true God. But there's a dark response, a resistance to the rule of God. The kings of the earth make a commitment to destroy David, the anointed one, the one chosen to rule Israel. These nations, now defeated by David, thought that they could rebel and defeat David yet. And then there is God's response, and it's found in verses 4 to 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That is to say, it was God himself who had installed David to rule from Jerusalem. And as for all the raging of the nations, God saw their plans as laughable. How do you wage a successful war against the God whose power is unstoppable? God doesn't even rise from his throne. He simply speaks the word and the nations are terrified. That, in a nutshell, is the description of the first six verses of this psalm. But that is merely the introduction. What now follows has implications for the whole world and all the plans of men and women. So let's read verses 7 to 9. I will tell you of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Let's see if we can put all that together. We see here that David is speaking. The Lord said to me, that's David's words. He's recounting something God said to him. And it's right here that we go back to the central issue. You know, back in verse 2, we notice that the animosity between the kings of the earth and the Lord is not just the nation's unwillingness to submit to God. But in verse 2, it was animosity against the anointed one. Well, the Hebrew word for anointed, that's the word Messiah. The anointed is the chosen one, the one set apart by God to do his bidding. And that's exactly David's experience. David never volunteered to be the king. He was chosen. He was set apart. He was placed into the situation of kingship. You're going to remember that it was the prophet Samuel who showed up at his father's house, and David had been out taking care of the sheep. He was the youngest, but Samuel called him in from the field and anointed him, poured oil over him, and announced that he would be the king of Israel. And then the situation goes like this. David had now been king for some time. He had built his palace. His enemies were all defeated, and his kingdom had peace. And as David, perhaps now with time in his hands, began looking around to see what was missing, well, something occurred to him. Here he was living in a beautiful palace, and just steps away was the tabernacle. Something was wrong. His palace was built of wood and stone. It seemed substantial. And the tabernacle, the place to worship God, was in a tent. So David decided that he would build a temple. It would be grand enough and big enough so that his palace would never overshadow the house of God, big enough to declare the greatness of his God. Well, you know the story. In the end, Nathan the prophet announced that things were going to turn out differently than David had planned. David was not going to build a house for God. That privilege, you'll remember, was finally given to David's son Solomon, but 2 Samuel 7 tells us that God was going to build David a house. 
And then in 2 Samuel 7, we find a chapter on which the entire Old Testament turns. It's it's pivotal here. The Bible stops at this moment. This is the great turning point in all of human history. 2 Samuel 7, God announces that he will establish David's throne and his kingdom forever. David would have a greater son, a greater son who would rule on his throne after he was gone, and this son would rule all the nations. And David, it turns out, says, I know, O God, that this is your charter for humanity. King David knew that his kingdom was only a symbol or a type. It was a foreshadowing of a much greater kingdom and the king who would rule all kings. So in reality, Psalm 2, I mean the entire psalm, is in fact this promise found in 2 Samuel 7 put into the form of poetry. So Psalm 2 is the poetic form of the historical situation that we find in 2 Samuel 7. In fact, David himself, the author of this psalm, tells what happened to him, that which is recorded in 2 Samuel 7. David said he knew that God had unstoppable plans for all the nations of the earth. So then, we know that God rules meticulously over all things. We also know that in the end of the day, all rebellion against him will cease. Well, how is God going to accomplish his defeat of his enemies? Well, for one, God could simply say to all the enemies, be no more, and they would be no more. Or he could keep frustrating their plans as he has been doing from the beginning. But that's not what he has in mind. What we find is that God's rulership to defeat the rebellious nations of the earth will be exercised in a peculiar way God will install his Messiah on David's ancient throne. This will be the charter for all humanity. From February 7th to 16th, 2020, make plans to join us for our Back to the Bible Canada Laugh Again Southern Caribbean Cruise. You'll be sailing the seas for nine days aboard Royal Caribbean's Explorer of the Seas, visiting Aruba, Curacao, Bonaire, and more. You'll be joining Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and now confirmed special friends and musicians Shane and Angela Weeb. I guarantee you'll be spiritually enriched and challenged, you'll laugh and be encouraged, and you'll enjoy great fellowship and refreshment. The Back to the Bible Canada Laugh Again Caribbean Cruise is a unique opportunity for connection, and we'd love to see you join us. Come on your own or with family and friends as you enjoy incredible ports of call, everything the ship has to offer, and a week of ministry designed specifically for the occasion. Check it all out at backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425. Psalm 2 is all about the installation of the Messiah on David's throne. Now, as we've already seen, David is a foreshadowing or a type of the Messiah. But in Psalm 2, David says, you, that is you, the great God, the great King, you said to me, you are my son. Well then, what did God mean when he called David his son? Well, according to 2 Samuel 7 verse 14, we read God's promise to David. It says, I will be a father to him and he will be to me a son. Well, that expression is everywhere found in the Old Testament. 
for instance, Psalm 103 tells us that as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on us. So it could be that all that David knows in 2 Samuel 7 is that he knew himself to be the object of God's fatherly love. But according to Psalm 2 verse 7, more is said than that. God adds, this day I have begotten you. Now we know that under normal conditions, begetting, well, it has to do with being conceived and then being born. But that can't be the meaning here. And that's because David said, on the day that God announced that my throne would eventually rule the earth, that was the day that I was begotten as his son. And so begetting here takes a specialized meaning. It means that on a certain day, the day God made a covenant with David, that his throne would rule the earth, on that day, God birthed a concept into the world. The concept is the Davidic kingdom. I have begotten you must mean I have chosen you and your throne to have preeminence over all the thrones of this earth. Your throne is first over all other thrones. Every other throne will bow down before this throne. This day I have begotten you means that. Now, of course, we know this promise is fulfilled in Jesus. He's the offspring of David. He is the Messiah. He's the one destined to rule on David's ancient throne. And with that in mind, let's go to Romans chapter 1, verse 3 to 4. And there Paul is speaking of what the prophets of the Old Testament have promised. He says, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. I hope you notice the language. Jesus was declared to be the Son by his resurrection from the dead. Now, to be sure, Jesus was always the Son. But at his resurrection, when he destroyed death itself, well, the kings and the princes and the leaders and presidents and prime ministers, and for that matter, the doctors and lawyers and carpenters and moms and dads, everyone heard the decree, you are my beloved Son. God had installed his king. And for what purpose? Well, look again at Psalm 2, verse 8. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Now listen, Jesus is unlike David. David only ruled Israel and a few small neighboring nations, but Jesus is the one who ultimately fulfills Psalm 2. This son will ask the father, and the father will grant his only begotten son's request. The Son will rule all the nations. I remember walking through that square in the city of Timisoara. It's a city that played a major role in bringing down communism in Romania. And I was walking through the square of the city with a pastor, and he told me the story of what happened there. The Christians in Timisoara had decided that the communists would not be allowed to take a leading pastor away from that city, and they rebelled against the rule. The president of the country had determined to bomb Timisoara to the ground, but then his army rebelled against that command, and eventually the army assassinated the communist leader of Romania. The pastor who recounted that story said to me, this is the end of everyone who will not bow the knee to Christ. You know, some time ago, a young woman claiming to be a Christian came to me after a worship service. She was quite angry with something I had said. And I found it fascinating that even though she claimed to be a Christian, she thought that we have our beliefs and other people have their beliefs. Who was I to say that Jesus was supreme overall? In her mind, that sounded like bigotry. And my response was simply a question. Who is Jesus? 
You see, that's the most important question anyone can ask. He is either the rightful heir of David's throne or he's not. He's either Messiah of Psalm 2 or he's not. He's either the one before whom every knee must bow or he's not. He's either King of kings and Lord of lords or he's not. And according to Romans 1 verse 4, that matter of his identity was settled 2,000 years ago in a newly cut tomb when the badly whipped and tortured and lifeless corpse of Jesus of Nazareth was laid into a tomb. And he, by the power of an indestructible life, broke through the prison of death itself and laid in broken and tattered ruins the kingdom of Satan. And by that one act, a proclamation was issued throughout the world that he reigns by the eternal decree of his Father. You know, I began this series by telling the story of a group of pastors who raise a glass at their meal and someone shouts, to the king. Indeed, this is quite a king. He's not a local deity, did you notice? Or the king of a geographical area, or only the king of the hearts of people who choose to make him king. No, no, he is king. And he, this king, laughs at his detractors, for his father has given him authority over all the nations. Now then, what are we to respond to this? Well, let's read the end of of Psalm 2, verses 10 to 12. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. We have to notice here that Psalm 2 begins with the kings of the earth counseling together as to how they might overthrow the king. They don't like his rule and they would like to be done with him. And so they gather in a conspiracy to overthrow him. And now at the end, realizing that the king of heaven has has placed his only begotten son on the throne that is destined to rule the earth, the kings of the earth are invited to gain a heart of wisdom. Who can succeed against this God? I mean, the nature of things is now clear. God rules. The nations want to overthrow his rule, and God laughs. He installs his king. King Jesus is the Messiah who will one day rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That is the nature of things. The only question that remains is this. What then should you do? And verse 11 answers the question. Serve the Lord with fear. Now, when we read that, we might get a sense that the kings of the earth should be serving him because they're afraid of what he might do. After all, his power is unstoppable. And furthermore, verse 3 said that he can terrify the nations in his fury. And furthermore, when we come to verse 12, his wrath is quickly kindled. But notice verse 11 again. After the counsel to serve the Lord with fear, it is what is said next. Rejoice with trembling, says the text. You know, most of us would say, it's just not possible. I mean, I know fear, I know trembling, and I know rejoicing, but I know those two things never mix. But here in Psalm 2, verse 11, they do. So let me illustrate that by using myself as an example. I have a fear of heights, but at least so it seems, on many of my holidays, Kathy and I always seemed to go somewhere where everyone, including my wife, climbed some awful cliff. and I was left feeling like a coward. So as best I could, I would try to follow with fear and trembling. No, I didn't rejoice. I I felt ashamed by my fears. I even wished my fears would go away, but I feared nonetheless. You know, some of us might look at the psalm in the same way. After all, kiss the son, we are told, lest he be angry and we perish. Now, to be sure, all those things are true. If he will reign with a rod of iron, we do well to serve him now. But if that's all we see in the text, we miss something. So let me tell you a little bit more about my fear of heights. 
when I actually get someplace high, I'm, I'm always astounded at beauty, the beauty of great vistas in a far distance. For me, however, it's a trembling beauty, but it's a beauty nonetheless. And that's where I think this leads us. I may tremble before God and his power, before his sovereignty, his wrath, and his glory, but nonetheless, I find I can't live without that beauty. And that's exactly the idea here. Listen, kings of the earth, be wise, delight in the one who fills you with fear, for he is God. So now listen to the words of Psalm 33, verses 8 to 10. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. Psalm 115 verse 3 says it all. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Or listen to Job's words to God recorded in Job 42 verse 2. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You know, I begin by speaking about trends and how no human being can either predict what is going to come in the future nor assure that their plans for the future will reach fruition. That's because God rules. Our king is sovereign. The nations are his. He regularly frustrates their plans. And to that I add, the great God has installed his Messiah on David's ancient throne and has established his rule by his resurrection from the dead. And hence the anointed one, the Messiah, Jesus, the ever-living Son of the living God, has taken his place. Hear this, kings of the earth. Fear the Lord with gladness. Submit to the Lord and join the throng of God's people who raise a glass and shout with great exuberance to the King. John, the Psalm 2, verses 10 to 12 passage, an amazing passage, you know, and I see words like fear and trembling and anger, and then it says to us to take refuge in him. Yeah. Wow. Well, I, I think uh, we might ask ourselves, where can I take refuge in a place that's secure? I mean, everything in the world seems insecure, so something or someone has to have enough authority and power so that I can take refuge in him. I think these words are really meant to encourage the people of God, especially uh, when we see nations rising up against us. And, uh, and this tells us, look, here's who your king is. Rejoice in him, take refuge in him. So it's both a warning and it's a wonderful word of encouragement. Thanks so much, John, and thanks so much for this series, To the King. And remember to join us again next week, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Everyone knows about the physical world, but what about the spiritual one? This is the world that isn't typically accessible through our five senses, but it is just as real. In his latest series, The Invisible War, Dr. John Newfeld dives into the spiritual world, highlighting that it's an arena of great struggle, but also an expression of God's glory. Listen this week as we learn about the battle going on all around us. The costs of this war are human souls, but the reward is eternity with Christ. So join us and be encouraged that although the battle is great, we have been promised that in the end, Christ will win the invisible war. For more information about the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, 
Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or head over to backtothebible.ca.